SQLogy Podcast. Today, Cliff and I interview Matt Hall. Before we get started with the interview, Cliff, do you want to give us a standings on the points race for SQLogy? Sure. Uh, this past weekend in Bloomington, we had a SQLogy 2X event there. Uh, Matt was actually one of the judges, and we had really good turnout. Uh, about 22 vehicles altogether, with uh, around 19 people doing IASCA, 14 doing MECA. As we kind of predicted last time, that kind of uh, actually upset the points race a little bit. Our top three right now, Mike Young is still in first place with the highest Mecca overall score and most miles driven. In second place is now Mark Ramsey Williams with uh, Indiana Sound Quality. He actually has the, within three points, he has the most Iaska points. And he's in second overall around 50 points behind Mike Young. And now in third place is Shannon Roberts with Sound Team 6. And he is... 20 points behind Mark. I was going to say, we didn't really expect to see any of the Sound Team 6 people up in Illinois uh, this event, but it was really cool that Shannon came up to represent them. Yeah, yes. Shannon's truck sounds amazing. And uh, again, he was one of the three cars that uh, earned perfect scores for imaging and uh, focus and placement. It was him, Ben Bachman, and Phil Gibbs. So uh, I think one other car, Bob Johan, scored oh, that's perfectly right. in imaging. Yeah, you didn't judge didn't him, judge that one. but he yep. also did score perfectly there. Yeah. We had some really, really good imaging cars. Absolutely. And uh, I think overall cars are getting better and better. And people, I think in large part, due to some of these podcasts, I hope, are uh, kind of taking note and uh, exchanging information and helping each other out. Because in my opinion, that's what this is all about is, you know, making our uh, drives and listening experiences more realistic and uh, true to the music and the artist's emotion and playback. What you were, you judged, I ask at both uh, the Driven show in Virginia and the show uh, this past weekend in Bloomington. What was your impression overall between the two shows? I mean, it's, <laughs> I uh, recently, as I think some people know, I've, I've actually been a judge for, I ask it for quite a while, just kind of hanging in the balance and in the wings. And um, recently I was invited to, I think, come back in, in a more prominent role as a judge and uh, do some 3X shows and stuff like that. I'm flattered people value my opinion. And the, as far as the show goes, uh, for me personally, it's um, uh, it's a shift because I recently departing from the um, competitor ranks and then kind of standing up as a judge, it's a little bit different because you, there's so many things that you want to say immediately to help everyone out. But uh, it's a little bit different when you have to kind of evaluate all their cars and um and then the other part is kind of being critical, and that's what it's all about, is that uh, finding a nice way to say in encouraging words, you know, these are some of the parts that uh, this is what I'm hearing, and this is sort of my recommendation on what I think can be done to improve these, the sound a little bit. I hear you there. I uh, judged a couple events, and I find the same thing. As a competitor and as a sound enthusiast, I want to get out of the car and be like, oh, change this, 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 and this, and this, and be very specific about things. But yep. as a judge, uh, we're not really there to help them completely fix their car. We're there to give them feedback on what we heard and uh, maybe some high-level places to start. Right. And uh, just so people are aware, it takes a lot of work and concentration to be able to, let's say, put down timestamps and tracks on where I heard specific things so I can be, you know, as helpful as absolutely possible and say, you know, this is what I heard right here, right, you know, on this track. And, uh, you know, they can go back and hopefully take that into uh, 
account and, and do something um, so that, it, you know, I thought about this for a little bit and I genuinely think some of the best scoring cars from a judging standpoint are very, very difficult to nitpick. Like they, they might not do anything exceptionally well, but they definitely don't do anything wrong. You know what I mean? It's, it's one of these areas where it's, it, it's pleasing. It does everything, but it, I think the cars that do some things very well uh, probably have made several compromises in other areas that uh, leave themselves exposed for uh, ridicule and, and uh, you know, low scores on the sheet in other aspects. It's very, very difficult to do everything perfectly. Absolutely. I find that in my own cars. It's like it's a it's a trade off. I can live or die by tonality and image imaging. But if I if I do that, then, you know, overall staging scores may not be the highest. So it's always a trade-off in something. Right. And to get back to Cliff's original question, I think, is, you know, what it, what was my impression of the shows? I, I The Esquiology shows are absolutely fantastic. It's low pressure. It's it's uh, It seems like everybody has a good time. You know, on the judging side, I'm, on one hand, thrilled at how many cars, you know, keep showing up. I think Cliff approached me two or three times, you know, this last weekend and handed me more and more score sheets from, you know, late arrivals kind of thing, which is awesome. I, I think that speaks to uh, sound quality competition is on the rise again and becoming more popular. It's it's interesting. We had our first event at Mobile Audio, I think a year and a half ago. It was not last season, but the season before it, right towards the end of the season, like September or something. We had our first event there and, you know, a handful of people showed up and, and we've had a few more events there since then. And each time it's grown. In fact, this last weekend, with it being Mother's Day and just a lot going on in general, late spring, I didn't expect to have as many people come as as what actually showed up. So it's really cool to see growth there. Absolutely. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your personal background, where you started in audio, maybe your first car and in cars since, and, and I guess just give us an idea of where you've been and where you're going, maybe some major sure. achievements and, and whatnot? Uh, yeah, my parents are both uh, musicians. Uh, we, me and my brother were raised as musicians. Uh, we grew up here in the Chicago area. As many people know, I joined the Air Force and have been all over the world and, you know, always was interested in audio and, and uh, you know, musical experience. And I uh, wound up in Interlochen, Michigan, where there's a uh, fine arts academy. And I was under the tutelage of one David Greenspan, who is um, one of these mad scientists when it comes to mixing live sound and capturing that experience of the live performance. And he and then I had a couple of other people, different experiences and, and uh, methodologies for capturing live sound. What I'm saying is Dave uses, you know, 48 channels of a 48 channel mixing board. And uh, I've had some other guys that use, you know, two microphones and an XY type setup and and um, so you kind of get that's where I've always pointed to sound quality. And what was the source? How how was this experience, this live performance captured? And then from there, we can start talking about, you know, mix downs and mastering and stuff like that. But you have to have a pure I think listening or a pure source, and that goes all the way back to uh, the microphones used to capture that um, recording. And then uh, moving forward from there as I started mixing uh, front of house and wound up in the uh, one of the side stages at Lollapalooza, mixing that for the northern tour. 
that burned me out. Uh, that That's a lot of really hard work. But you learn a little bit about uh, what it takes to create a mix that sounds good and, you know, doesn't feedback. And it's kind of a thankless job because everybody thinks, um, you know, when it sounds good, uh, everybody's happy in, in the mosh pit getting it on. And uh, when when things uh, fall apart, everybody blames the sound man. So it's a uh, trial by fire, so to speak. But moving forward, uh, my first car to answer that question was uh, actually modeled after Gary Biggs Regal. I had the Pontiac version, the Grand Prix of that. And um, one of my very, very first shows, um, I met Mr. Mark Eldridge, who was gracious enough to uh, drop some knowledge on me. And uh, I found myself with a set of horns from Eric Stevens and Image Dynamics and um, some Soundstream amplifiers. Thought that sounded pretty good. Moving forward, um, after that, I uh, had a silver Audi S4. That had a bunch of kind of crazy stuff in it. That was sort of in the early 2000s. I joined T-Mark Audio back then. I had uh, a Micro Precision Z series in there at one point. I had some prototype Image Dynamics IDW subs uh, in an IB configuration. I, you know, looking back, it, you know, you think you sound, it sounds good then, but I would like to think that I've learned more and kind of fine-tuned system design and, and, you know, got better tuning. So I hope my current Mercedes sounds way better than either of those vehicles. (laughs) What what would you say is kind of your biggest aha moment during that time when you went, oh, everything I've been doing is wrong. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great question. It's kind of, um, you know, fortunately, I've been uh, learning an awful lot more about not necessarily how humans hear, but vehicle acoustics and, and specifically phase. I've I've read an awful lot about phase and I think it's something that every car and every, you know, sound enthusiast, be it a competitor or not, should pay more attention to in terms of getting that right. Um, And it starts with crossover theories and and what type of filters we're going to use. And then, of course, getting uh, the time alignment, you know, just right, which, of course, phases a function of that. So to answer your question, I think it's sort of being more acutely aware of when it's right and when it's wrong and then why is it wrong and then what to do about it to fix it. And it's a, it's it's nothing that you're going to find in a textbook. It's it's kind of a school of hard knocks. And it's it, that's, again, not to keep banging this drum, but why I keep inviting people over and out to shows is to, you know, kind of let them hear all of the different vehicles and and then, you know, see if they come to that same epiphany, if you will, and say, well, I heard this in this car and I'm kind of piecing together. And, and it's fascinating to me to see their, let's say, scientific method or logic lead them down the path that says, well, I think this is why this works. No, absolutely. And I would say it was the, the same for me. Once I kind of started visualizing how sound works when you have multiple speakers working together mm-hmm. it once you can kind of start thinking in that way and then when you sit there and play with it and get a better understanding of how each speaker is affecting the other speaker then yep. it seems like things become much more you're at least cognizant of it and you start thinking about how to make all that work together in unison cohesively exactly I think a lot of people, whether or not they're reading like a pro audio type 
setup and, and methodology for setting up that doesn't always one-to-one translate to a car experience or a vehicle experience, I should say. So that's good knowledge, but uh, just remember to kind of take it with a grain of salt and use your ears as as best judgment. But because this is such a unique sport, hobby, niche enjoyment, I, I don't really know what to call it, all the above, I suppose. I think that the best way is simply gaining experience and merging that with what you've heard in your you know real life and and never losing focus of what is real and uh you know their their car audio is going to be full of compromises everywhere from system design you know speaker placement tuning you know what what's capable and so i i think if you always remain you know with a solid reference on what is you know a perspective of what is real and what you're going for um, I think you're going to uh, be a, much further ahead of most people. So you were doing a lot of this before modern day digital signal processing was. Yeah, you just the, made me think of it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So uh, things have changed. And and I know I'm I'm kind of in that boat, too. I haven't been doing this forever, but since late 90s, I guess. And my yep. first several systems, it it, it was either. You just went with your head unit and an amplifier and tried to get things right with the controls that gave you, or you spent some money on a, in an analog piece that would give you some control of the EQ. And, but, but I remember my first system where I had, uh, I bought the, the Zapco DC reference amplifiers that had the digital sound processing built into them, but it was a whole new world. It just gave you that level of control. And I can see that being intimidating for a lot of people who don't, you know, understand what all that stuff does. But it's right. it, it's interesting the control and, and the, the the level that that lets you take your system to. In the home audio shows, especially like Rocky Mountain Audio Forest or uh, Apoxena that you know you just came up to, Ben. Those guys have seminars at those shows that you know they'll pick a topic and for a couple extra bucks or something like that, you'll get some subject matter expert, quote unquote, to uh, you know. Uh, at least introduce this, you know, what it is and why we care about it kind of thing. And I think that would be a huge, huge uh, benefit to, you know, co-locate it at some shows. So, you know, we could talk about crossover theory. We could talk about vehicle acoustics. We could talk about psychoacoustics. We could talk about, you know, system design, installation, you know, pick one of the things. But I think there's some uh, value added to and that might attract a lot more people to come out to these shows. I've almost thought, you know, like at this last show at Bloomington this past weekend, we had several people who just came to observe. They they mm-hmm. didn't bring a car to compete. They just they might have had a car that you know they've they've built, but they didn't have that comfort level of oh, um, I've never been to a competition. I don't know what the competition's going to be like. I I don't know where my system's at in relation to everyone else. And I just want to observe. Right. Um. It would almost be nice to take one of those cars it, and put them in the install bay and just take an hour, hour and a half and tune the thing from scratch and kind of demonstrate for everybody what you're doing and explain the whole process. So that, right. that may be something we do at a, an event coming soon. Exactly. That's a great idea because I've had so many people, you know, ask questions and I've seen online and, and it, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. But I think um, some people that might know the right answers are a little bit, uh, let's say, leery of sharing that because it's a competitive edge. And I, I really think that's kind of a, a tragic look at it. But if people can be more encouraging and say, you know, this is how I did it. And, you know, then that's when 
um, I think it will see massive growth and uh, people will start to work together rather than, I guess, chasing some trophy or something like that. But sorry if I appear jaded right now. It's just um, something that I think all of us would have been a lot further along if we kind of avoided that uh, cloaked in secrecy bit. That's part of it. The other side of it, at least for me, a few people have asked me to, you know, explain my tuning process to them. And I, and I can explain it. I can I can go through it and say, you know, this is where I start. These are the things I do. And this is what I'm listening for. But unless mm-hmm. you're actually there and sitting in that driver's seat, you, you don't really know. It's hard to explain what you're listening for. I, I concur. Yep, absolutely. It's like, how do you explain Almost when you hear the like phase a, comes together? Yeah, right. Like a, a one-on-one internships kind of thing. It, I right. mean, it's tough. I I think part of it too is the following criticism that comes when you put yourself out there to do that. Yep. Before Eschiology, you know, we've done around a dozen events that were competition plus training and kind of going through all that, and of course. There isn't a set guideline on this is how it's done. So there's a lot of approaches to it. And there's always that feedback loop that is a deterrent for the people who are teaching it because either A, they're giving up their secrets or they're just saying what works for them or there's six months of people braiding them on why do you do it that way? That's stupid. You should do it this way. (laughs) Right. I think if we can approach it more in a way that, hey, we all have part of the process that we can learn from each other to put that into a bigger picture process, you don't have to like every part of it, but there might be something in the middle there that makes it way easier or way more accurate for you to do something based on what somebody else has learned in their history. Right. I think there's some threshold that's crossed too when when it stops sounding like a pile of electronics and speakers and starts sounding like a system and reproducing music too. And that's, I think, the threshold that everybody desires to get past. And I know um, just from the the people that I've had that don't know anything about car audio, like my mom, she'll, she'll sit in you know, the driver's seat and shows, you know, just smile and say, I can see him. He's out over your hood. I'm like, yes, that's, that's That's the idea, mom. Yep. And I think a lot of people try to get that, but I encourage everyone to use that motivation, that desire to seek out and ask those questions. I, I, I think everybody that's, you know, ever won some world champion trophy or something like that, or hailed as, you know, one of the car audio, you know, pillars of the community has been in your shoes. Like whatever you do, don't be scared to ask questions and keep approaching those and uh, that, you know, seem to have the cars or the systems that you think sound good and ask them how they did it and get that knowledge from them. Because I think the biggest tragedy is if we don't continue this and move forward and keep improving. To shift gears a little bit here on you, uh, you've been working on bringing an amplifier to market Obviously, this isn't your full-time job. We have a very involved full-time job. (laughs) Yeah. I don't don't know a ton of people right now that are going through that process, so I just kind of like to know more on a personal level kind of how you've balanced all that out, what kind of team you've developed around you to make that happen, and that kind of thing. Sure. So I've always been fascinated with, I think, amplifiers in particular, and and why this pile of part can make music and 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 why the, another amplifier with a different pile of part 
can make music, but they sound different. Why is that? And and which one sounds right and more real? And I've kind of been on this crusade for as long as I've been into this hobby. And, and um, I, I mean, every system needs one. So kind of it comes down to, you know, th- this led me to doing amplifier shootouts. And only recently have I started to share these um, and I, I think be more uh, open about what I was doing. But Truthfully, I way back in the day, uh, everybody remembers and loves to bring up Richard Clark's Amp Challenge. And yeah. what I read in there is that if you read between the lines, I believe Richard Clark says ampl- he acknowledges amplifiers sound different until we put these constraints on them. So if we're going to manipulate frequency response on one of them, which is what he did then we can sort of trick the human ear into believing that either amplifier is indistinguishable, sonically indifferent from each other. I argue that there's more to it than that. I feel that if, if Richard's saying that amplifiers sound different, cool, next step. How and why do they sound different? Why do some amplifiers have a bigger, deeper, wider, more defined, uh, layered soundstage? Why do some have just this you know, beautiful top-end tonality? You know, what? what is it about that? So, like we were just talking about a minute ago, I started asking questions, started reading around, and, you know, utilizing a little bit of, you know, engineering background and uh, reading everything I could on the subject, and then uh, spending a ton of money on, uh, you know, various makes and models amplifiers. It, continuing to go through these sort of pragmatic and empirical approach to, well, immediately switching between the two, or three, I can do up to three, and figuring out, why I like a particular sound. It's obviously not globally and blindly received because so many people push back on that. I understand that. I I hear what people are saying. And unfortunately, without some way to measure and show what not only me, we've had a panel of listeners here for these shootouts, but um, what we're hearing, and it's a consensus, I don't know how to measure that. And that leads me to another point is that I'm not sure the uh, measurements never. So specs and measurements, there, there is a, a difference there. Specs is something that, you know, is a theoretical approach. Measurements it, it means that it's coming through, you know, a lab and somebody's applied stimulus routing and measurements. You know, we can compare what goes into what comes out and all kinds of data uh, can spit out from that. I'm not personally convinced that what we're being presented is somehow correlated and tied in a sensical manner to say this amplifier sounds better than that. I think in broad strokes, you could say, you know, signal and noise ratio uh, with uh, a better performing amplifier, it's probably going to have more transparent soundstage. I'm merely sharing my hypotheses and theories right now with you guys. I I have no way of proving this. And and that's why I'm kind of willing to take my lashings for not being able to point to any particular measurement or number on a piece of paper and say, this is why this is better. I I don't know. My analogy on amplifiers follows the cars themselves. To take Richard Clark's scenario, if I put a a Yugo and a Veyron at 55 miles per hour on the freeway, they both go 55 miles per hour the same. Yep. Same as, you know, a this car that does 0, 16, 3.9 seconds versus a GTR, for example, does 3.9 seconds. They both do things spec-wise the same, but yep. there's a lot of purists that would say, well, I'm not going to drive a GTR because 
XYZ. Sure. And I think a lot of where amplifiers make their difference is when they hit their extremes. And they're not going to be noticed going 55 miles per hour down the road, but you know, take three laps around the track and let me know how your brakes are holding up. And that's when, to me, the difference in amplifiers really make themselves known. Or after you've been demoing for eight and a half hours, or right. stuck in a trunk at 120 degrees, et cetera, et cetera. Right. There's a, right. And those are all the sort of, let's say, intangible things that, you know, what about the amplifier uh, companies, you know, customer service that speaks volumes. Can you pick up the phone Absolutely. and call somebody and get help? Um, is physical size a concern? You know, all of the other aspects that surround an amplifier other than just sound are important. So, uh, but you're absolutely right. You know, if we look at one particular unit of measure, like a zero to 60 time or something like that, that's one aspect. But does that, you know, in the, to get it back into the audio sense, let's say just frequency response, for example. So if we have, you know, does that in and of itself mean it's a, a musical and real sounding amplifier? I'm not convinced that's true. And then you throw it in a car where frequency response changes drastically depending on the car. Exactly. Yeah. To, for these shootouts, that's why I tried to make it as level field as, as, as possible. I mean, one set of speakers that, you know, these MagnaPans have very linear uh, impedance curve. They're uh, contrary to popular belief. They are incredibly uh, an easy load for the amplifier. That said, they have a low sensitivity so that I'm asking a little bit more out of the amplifier, uh, at least at reasonable listening levels in a relatively large listening room. I think my room is 14 and a half by uh, eight and a half by like 30 something feet deep. Um, so it's, I don't know that I, I would say pushing them hard, but I'm, I'm making them work. You know, again, have to do some hand waving to say, well, it's, it's not exactly a one to one from my listening living room to a trunk in a vehicle. Moving forward, I acquired a Genesis dual mono on eBay for something like 180 bucks or something like that. And uh, when I got it uh, in my test rig in, in my living room when I was living in Colorado, it just abs- it immediately sounded amazing. And I, w- I knew it was something special. And uh, so I got out a bunch of my other quote-unquote reference amps. In my opinion, the Genesis just sounded more musical. It just had that it factor. I, I and again, I I know I'm gonna I g- get flamed for all this, but it just sounded right. So I contacted Gordon, and he smiled and and wanted to. Uh, we figured out that it was an early serial number, and um, we wanted to push things a little bit further. And so he offered to upgrade the the one that I had. And uh, from that, um, we just kind of developed a awesome friendship and and uh, we're always he he's one of these few guys that's out there that's as passionate about you know his craft and developing amplifiers that just sound musical and so we've gone back and forth so for the last two years i've been running uh prototype amplifiers things that he's had designs of and wanted to try and tweak and upgrade and i've had those in my car some to varying degrees of success other ones that were not not so hot, but it seems like we've kind of tightened things up into what works. And so now some people may know that Genesis is no longer affiliated with with uh, Gordon. And we felt it was time to to 
have a, a, a product out there, a line of amplifiers that was the why not. It, it's the ones, you know, by music lovers for music lovers. We want to release something that makes a lot of sense, is incredibly beautiful to look at, as well as, uh, you know, sonic performances, top shelf. So the covert reason for the recent amp shootout in January um, was to ensure that the Revelation audio amplifiers, the efforts that Gordon and I put together, were as good as the top performing stuff that was out there. And uh, candidly, they are. I, you'll never hear me or any of uh, the Revelation Audio guys ever utter the words, these are the best, because I, I cringe at the thought of that, that, well, it's like asking, you know, somebody, what's, how do you like your steak? Or, or you know, what's your favorite red wine? Uh, you're going to get a variance of responses out of that. And that's okay. That's the part, fun of the, uh, part of the fun of this hobby. I can say they're very, very good. And, you know, if, if you like the way we do things, I'd, I'd love for you to, uh, you know, enjoy some of these amplifiers. For clarification, uh, you've referenced Gordon. Who is Gordon? Gordon Taylor. He lives, uh, he was the man, the myth, the legend behind Genesis. He's a, a New Zealander living east of London right now. One of the best individuals I've had the pleasure of meeting. I can't say enough stuff about him. He is the Amp Doctor, I believe is. Yeah, he he runs the Amp Doctor. Absolutely. Yep. So all of, I, I think, save for a couple of amplifiers that um, I've had, uh, have been through his hands. And uh, for he does things like upgrade caps and, and tweak the bias and kind of, let's say, freshen up uh, a lot of old school amplifiers as well as the current production stuff. But uh, I don't know. Anyone, I, I just can't imagine. Uh, if you are interested in unlocking the most of your amplifier's potential, I highly encourage you to seek Gordon out and uh, see what can be done. Going back to the amp challenge real quick. Sure. How? What criteria are you using to differentiate the amplifiers? Only I only ask because I know as both friend, casual listener, jumping in a car to show versus sitting mm-hmm. down and judging 18, 20 cars in a day. Mm-hmm. your perspective is quite different when you're actually writing numbers down on the score sheet versus casual listening. I might sit there and go, man, this car sounds great and get out and I'm unfazed. And then I get back in it later with a score sheet and I, I have to be critical of it. And then you sit there kind of going, Oh, well it falls down here, but it's really good here. And I didn't really notice that before. So what's your process on, on how you're doing that? <laughs> I, I don't know that unless it's just kind of background music and stuff, I'm very, very focused on, I, I, I think no matter what you do, I, I think I'm critical by nature. And uh, thanks, mom, for raising me like that. Uh, <laughs> so, for example, uh, and maybe this will kind of make sense when I tell you this. So uh, my day job is being a pilot. And it's hard for me to just ride on an airplane and not think about everything that let's say from an evaluation point of what's happening up in the cockpit. Whereas, you know, when I do it myself, uh, again, I'm trying to learn upon that and, and gain from that experience. And, and But I know exactly what you're talking about. So to kind of get to the amplifier challenge bit, all of us were listening for, I think, that realism, overall, uh, you know, sonic perspective. And it wasn't really sort of like a, a valued scoring system. 
it just this one is better for these reasons and this is what i'm hearing from the qualities so uh, is for the from the presentation from this amplifier this one does it better than this one that kind of thing gotcha okay so it's more of a overall presentation of listenability then a lot of people aren't quite comfortable especially with some of the people that once so there there's an art to being a judge too right so i didn't want to teach everyone that was listening to amplifiers be like okay if you're listening to you know stage width this is a 10 this is a 9 this is you know this is the scoring system for these qualities because i think that one kind of devalues what i was chasing after which is simply which one you know sounds the most real to you gotcha I I wasn't really interested in that. All I was interested in is was uh, you know correlating you know these people seem to feel that these amplifiers sounded better than these amplifiers. It was kind of interesting how the the group of them or the amplifiers just fell into groups of performance. It was it they were you know these were the best. These were you know really good. These were you know okay, and these were uh, all right. Gotcha. <laughs> Understood. All right, uh, yeah. Ben, you got any other questions? I have all kinds of questions. He wants to ask, <laughs> he wants to ask you about high res. That's what he wants to ask you about. Oh, high res. Uh, well, I had forgotten all about that, but since you bring it up, <laughs> I have a two-part question, Matt. Uh it's real simple. First of all, have you dabbled in high res? Have you have you listened to high res? Have you played with it? Uh and then second part of the same question is uh do you feel there is something there beyond CD quality? I do. Uh, I have and I do. Right now, I'm in the middle of a interconnect shootout. So now that we're so far down in the uh, point of diminishing returns, my immediate comment is that y- this would be nearly impossible without some high-res music. Just the subtle nuances between uh, cables. That said, there there absolutely is difference, and I'm I'm going to publish that soon. But does high-res music sound better than CD? That's a loaded question. And again, we go back uh, to bring things full circle to what was the source? Was it recorded and mastered at, you know, a high res uh, level? Or if it was simply upsampled, that's, that's a different matter altogether. I think the problem that most of us have right now, one is not knowing that true false statement right there, if it was recorded uh, in uh, high res capability. Two is uh, most of the stuff that was recorded in high res is not exactly pop music. So uh, nobody really kind of, it doesn't have a strong following right now. I, I've found that to be true um, in buying or looking, looking for music and, and buying music on uh, some of the high res websites. It, it's kind of difficult to go out and navigate for the types of music that, that, that I prefer to listen to generally. Yep. I've uh, recently stumbled across, and maybe um, we can find a way to post. Uh, there's, I think, maybe a dozen or so websites that kind of cater to um, different genres and, and, let's say, more popular music in, in high-res quality. So, so we can get Bieber in all of his glory. Exactly. You can hear every <laughs> little bit. Yep. After, I mean, I think we're at that point where now, especially that you're making your own product you're kind of seeing all sides of most of the sides of the product part of the industry what's one piece of advice you would have for somebody just starting out who's maybe come to a couple shows has a moderate system it doesn't sound terrible but it's not there yet they they're just kind of learning the pieces of the puzzle what would 
what would be your piece of advice to them or what would you tell yourself 15 years ago? Right. Um, I think a lot of it would having that high level, let's say, uh, all these data points. And again, just simply come out to the shows, listen to as much as you possibly can and, you know, ask these questions and figure out, you know, I'm a firm believer in less is more when it comes to, to car audio because it's a near field listening environment. You know, I, I don't think it's a big secret anymore. There's there's four speakers in the front of my car. A lot of people are stunned, at, you know, the size and locations. But I did that, again, because I like wideband drivers for what they do. Uh, having that coherency, of a single point, a vo- one voice coil doing a range of music uh, alleviates a lot of the phase anomalies that you're going to incur with crossovers. And it, more importantly, though, is having one source of sound for in a near field listening environment it lends itself so much better to creating a you know wide deep big uh, sound stage that images very well it's when you add multiple drivers and and getting a, into a more complex system that i think should be to no surprise that it's more difficult to tune and you know, it it will have its own set of compromises that you're going to have when trying to tie all that stuff together. So I think absolute pleasure and kind of refreshing to judge, let's say, these lower echelon classes like amateur, novice, uh, where it's such a simple system and it sounds fantastic. And I think some of the guys kind of say, well, you know, I, I, uh, I want to try, you know, a, a more complex system and it just kind of unravels. So I think from my perspective is be very careful when thinking that, for example, going from a two-way to a three-way or something like that is going to get you some advantage. Figuring out why you're going to do that. What acoustical benefits do you think you're going to realize from adding more speakers? That kind of thing. Yeah, I would I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Just in my own experience, it seems like you feel like you're missing something by not going to that next big thing. Mm-hmm. And then... You go to do it all, and then either it never gets done, or you get depressed when it's done because it's not as good as your last thing, or it's only just a little bit better, or you have an unusable car now, or you've hauled around on a trailer like Ben. Well, Ben's jumped off are mean. <laughs> You're extra mean. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. There's beauty and simplicity, for sure. So one, one last question from me, anyway, since Ben got his high-rise question in. I know you have a list of songs that you use for your amplifier shootout and that, but if you're on a desert island and you only have one song to evaluate a system with, <laughs> what would you use? Oh, man. And I know this mostly is personal experience and how long you've lived with the song and everything more so than its sonic qualities, just for the audience to know that. But Right. Uh, but what would, what would you be stranded with? Wow. I, that's a great question. I immediately I thought of uh, Lord Royals just because it's oh, that's a brutal track, and uh, I've had it on a couple of show demo CDs. I can't say I'm you know a huge fan of Lord or the lyrics or anything like that, but the recording, I'm telling you, there's a lot of space in there. There's a lot of to get her voice to sound right, you know, with the backup singers and stuff like that. And trust me, I think no secret that to get that bass. Uh, and to sound right is all, it's very very demanding. That's a that's a tough track. Cool, mm. Ben. You got anything else? Like I said, I'm, I'm full of questions. 
I've definitely got more questions than answers, well, we and I'd love to talk sometimes. to Matt. I talked to Matt. <laughs> I talked to Matt quite a bit, <laughs> but uh, we'll have Matt my back. Pleasure. I'd love we'll to talk to Matt. you guys more. Yep, it was good to talk. Thanks for having me. All right, all right. Thanks, Matt. All right, we'll take talk care, soon. Guys. Thanks. All right, bye. Bye. Bye.